The really successful campaigns, the really successful brands have always erred on the side of art and made things commercially successful in that regard. One of the biggest challenges that I think facing Australian retailers is the conservative nature of the hierarchy within a lot of companies is, I think, causing a lot of their competitive disadvantage on a global scale. That's George Santony, one of the most in-demand Australian photographers. In this episode, we unpack George's unconventional route to where he is today and the way he assembles his teams. We dived into his really important perspectives into commercial and artistic brand stories and how down under we approach things a lot differently to the international brands, mostly due to our upbringing and the Australian way. It's a pretty unique way of thinking and something that I hadn't really intellectualised before, but I'm really excited and privileged that George did so with me. We've recorded this episode while he was in a remote area with his family and the Wi-Fi was a little bit patchy and I apologise about the lag, but I think that you'll learn so much from this episode that you won't even notice. Much like episode one with Philippa Moroni, as soon as we started recording, we burst out laughing because it's so amusing to us to both chat like this. George is just the best and I hope that you love our chat. Process the Podcast is produced by Cinema Tom, my very own production company. We specialise in fashion and lifestyle content. Myself and my beautiful team of girls create content for some of the biggest brands in the country, like Mecca, Kmart, Sheet Society, Ford, AAA Insurance, and so many more. So many small brand owners want to create social content to service their presence on apps like Instagram and TikTok. And while those apps have great trends for you to jump on, not all of us want to be in front of the camera every day. So I've made a cheat sheet to give back to you, the listener. It's a cheat sheet of more than 25 trends to jump on and you don't need to show your face at all. Jump over to cinematom.com and there's a little pop-up for you to download it. I hope you love it and tag us if you want to. I would love to see what you create. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. <laughs> George Doll, how are you? How is your fam? Last time I saw you, when we were working together, City hadn't been born yet and you were texting Phoebe because you were like, oh, my God, like, is it going to happen? Oh, yeah, that's... My family is amazing. So City's now well and truly born. I can tell you that with she has a great deal of energy. Um, <laughs> she's definitely there and she's been amazing. But the exciting thing in our family is we're now expecting baby number three. I saw that on Instagram. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, I literally you. squealed. Like, you know how people, like when you, <laughs> like when someone messages you saying, ha, 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 you, you're like, did you really laugh or did you just do that? I literally read it and like my whole face and body like contorted into like a. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling because I've got two girls and I've been surrounded by girls my whole life, which is one thing that really I think informs my career. I've got three older sisters. I come from a matriarchal family. All my best friends at high school and university were girls. I've got a wife and two daughters. I'm sure that I'm going to have another girl because everything in my life has been informed by women. That's true. You actually, on the first time I met you, you walked up onto set and said, your hair's amazing. I've been blow-waving my sister's hairs forever. And that is a good blow-wave. <laughs> it's true. It's still good. But you are looking good for someone that's been cooped up in a room for a week. But that's because I've never felt better than since I've had COVID. <laughs> Because So rested? Well, rested and also it's kind of been four days compulsory off being a dad, which I don't love, although there has been many sessions of me dancing in the room and the girls dancing outside to a lot of Disney songs. So that's been my connection. But I've mm-hmm. I've slept well and honestly I was just so sick with this other flu before COVID that this COVID isolation thing has just given me the opportunity to rest and I never usually get the opportunity to do that. My summer's been a disaster. I, I have not enjoyed this Christmas. <laughs> I have not enjoyed this Christmas break at all. It hasn't gone to plan at all, but it's been, I mean, how, how can we complain? There's so many people that are in a lot worse position than us. You know, there's a lot of people that have lost loved ones and so on and so forth, but I, I just, it did not go to plan. I don't think it has for anybody. No. What about yours? How was your summer? My summer's been okay. I've been, I've been plotting middle world domination with this podcast, really. I um, got COVID uh, New Year's Day. And then I was um, cooped up. But I also don't relax on holiday. Like when I'm holidaying, I'm like reading a self-improvement book and like I'm like putting the book down and being like, hey, what if we did this business model and what if you did that and what about the metrics on this and how's a markup on that? And like why isn't anyone doing this because I can see a demand for that, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm always on. Do you ever wish you were the type of person that could relax? Yes, all the time. Yeah. 
Well, I can relax, but I just, like my version of recharging is giving myself like expansive space to be creative and think yeah. and sort of like see nuances and, and really like lend my mind to things that I wouldn't usually think about day to day. P.S. That is not so, relaxing. <laughs> can you relax? Are you a relaxer? Uh, no, no. I, 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 I believe that the luckiest people in the world are those that are 100% content with their situation. And I feel like I was not blessed with that genetic profile. And it's not that I'm searching for more financially or actually not even creatively or anything. I just really have a crazy instinct to fill my time up to the brim. What I'm trying to do is change the components of what that cup is full of at the moment. So I'm, so if that cup is my time, yeah. I'm trying to fill it more and more with family and my children and those kind of things without really affecting my output with work and time with friends and those kind of things. But for me, my, my day consists of either work or family and pretty much nothing else. So... From the moment that I met you, I want to I want you to take us right back because I don't, I've never been on a set with someone that enters a room and goes through the station so authentically as you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like when we walk on set, you're kind of, I mean, as the photographer, you are sort of running that and you do have a lot of people to tell what to do and you've got to keep run a tight ship, but you're also managing creativity and, and client expectations. But yeah, you just know how to work a room almost like it's Christmas and oh. you've got little pockets with different personality types in every single pocket and then you sort of are malleable to that personality that you are confronted with. You know, you've got a, a nervous model, a makeup artist that's probably rushing to set things up. You've got a video team that doesn't have to do anything until lunchtime and then <laughs> <laughs> you just got, you know, there's lots happening but you're sort of, you know, do you know what I mean, that parallel of like how how you kind of work a family Christmas to make sure that you're ticking all the boxes. You just did that really, really well. Oh, thank and you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So what was your upbringing like? An incredible upbringing. So I was born in a country town called Blackall in central Queensland. So six hours to the closest mm -hmm. traffic light, 11 hours to the beach and on the edge of the Simpson Desert. So just to put in perspective, my mum and dad you're right that everything in my life has revolved around family, not even just my current family with my children, but I'm still incredibly close with my mum and dad and my sisters. I mean, I'm, as we speak, I'm in my sister's front room isolating. So up in Queensland. So they really are everything for me. And they're also every motivation that I've ever had to try and succeed and, and do well has been, they've been a significant fuel in that source. So I grew up in this small little country town in central Queensland uh, we owned a clothes shop, so we were like the local kind of clothes and saddlery and haberdashery, which is one of my favourite words. Um, <laughs> it's a great word. And uh, shoe merchants. So my mum and dad moved out wow. from Lebanon to escape the war, somehow managed to find themselves in central Queensland in the middle of nowhere. And I was basically brought up in a clothes shop. Uh, in a playpen and a clothes shop. Mm -hmm. And um, this country town of Blackall was an incredible place to grow up. And I think it also formulates a lot of my creative process and the way my brain works because mm -hmm. having lived in Blackall pretty much my whole youth, we never had locks on our doors um, because everyone knew everyone and no one was ever mm -hmm. going to steal anything. And, you know, it's, it was really just old Australia, you know, old school Australia. So I didn't ever have locks, so I didn't have boundaries. And so I didn't have boundaries on how I got to school. It didn't have to be by a bus and I could stay out for as long as I wanted because there was really no threat of anything going wrong. And so I think my brain and my mind has grown up in that context and continues that in my work and continues that in my life. So I don't really fear for much that I probably should fear for. In saying that, I'm very, very careful with my children. So it's kind of a bit hypocritical, but different times, I suppose. But, yeah, so I think that that open landscape that I was brought up in, that freedom really has um, impacted the way I work. Yeah, wow. It's so interesting. I've, um, I've also realised that with my own upbringing. I spent a lot of time overseas. My parents own a hotel in, um, in Melbourne and they used to take us on trips and we'd go into these hotels and cities and experiences and stuff. And they were always searching, like they were always um, 
almost like on a pilgrimage to search for the most interesting idea that they could implement into their own hotels and their own customer service and stuff like that. And I guess that's sort of what I'm doing when I don't really take breaks. And I'm always like, what if you twisted that? And what if you just did that? And da, 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 da. So fascinating how as adults that all sort of comes together for us and how we're influenced to be the people that we are today. Just for transparency, Melbourne is my favourite city in Australia. Really? Why is that? I just find that Melbournians are really well-rounded people. I know that's a very controversial thing to say um, and quite a generous <laughs> thing to say, but I just find, I don't know, I, I like the idea that the weekend is not consumed by the beach but is consumed by other extracurricular activities which could include anything from art to AFL to tennis. Like it's just it feels a little bit more, it feels more rounded. So you've had a really unconventional way into the industry. I have read that about you in my research and I do know that about you. So can you shed some light on how the hell you ended up here? So my educational background is I did a a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Law. Mm-hmm. And then I worked for the Coca-Cola company for a few years in a, you know, really kind of sophisticated graduate development program and then moved to PricewaterhouseCoopers as a consultant in strategy in business. And at the same time, I had been approached, you would never believe this now, but back in the day I was approached to do modelling. And I... <laughs> I believe it. I don't believe it. Um <laughs> There must have been a real shortage uh, of talent. But anyway, I, 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 I said no the first few times. But when I got approached, I think I got approached three or four times. On the fourth time, I thought I'd give it a go. And then I started doing it. I, I realised that you can make actually quite a bit of money off it. And so I, I was doing that and I ended up becoming really good friends with a photographer that took my first photos, a guy by the name of Chris Seipert. And um, we ended up living together. And I just absolutely loved the way he saw the world. So he saw the world very differently wow. to me. I basically was in a very corporate role. I was buying and selling companies within the Coca-Cola umbrella to consolidate bottling companies. It's a whole long story. Basically, I was in a, a, a very stringent corporate role and I felt like I was desensitising myself to the world and then he was the exact opposite. So we'd go outside and he'd be like, it'd be an overcast day just about to rain and he'd be like, oh, my God look how beautiful this light is. Wow, look at that light. And I'm like, you crazy? You've been smoking something? What's going on? Anyway, but I, then I thought, oh, you know, it's actually a really beautiful thing to be that sensitive to the world. So I, it's actually a really funny story. I was living in Singapore at the time with him and um, he went to France for a job or something and I'd ordered a camera and told him that I was going to start taking photos just because, not to become a photographer, but just, to, like I said, to resensitize myself to the world. So I bought this camera and um, didn't really know how to put the lens on. All this. Like I, was just, I really knew no, I, I really knew absolutely nothing. But I, my ex-girlfriend was a, um, that I was living with in Singapore at the time, was like a model, quite a famous model and a, a VJ, you know, for Channel V. My friend was away in France and I finally worked out how to put the lens on and I put some film in the camera and anything that could have went wrong went wrong. Like So, for example, when I shot the first roll of film, I opened up the back of the camera and I realised that it said on the inside of the back of the camera, remove before shooting. <laughs> so I had exposed this whole roll oh, of film nice. with this sheet of paper in front of the I, – I, I, put, <laughs> I, put I put in another roll and I started shooting da 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 and then I forgot to wind back the camera because <laughs> like, back in the day you had to press this button to oh. wind it back. So I took it out and I exposed the back of the <laughs> the film. So by this stage I'm thinking, bloody hell, I'm just going to quit. This is ridiculous. But I thought, you know, I'm pretty persistent and stubborn <laughs> and also quite docile. So I kept going. And then the, the, the third one on was that I had forgot to load the roll of film into the actual camera and I shot, I was like, you look beautiful. I'm shooting my ex-girlfriend, right? It's on our bed in, uh, and I was and doing all the, nothing. oh my God, I, I, I was doing all the things that I, you expect photographers to do. <laughs> Come on, work it, baby. Oh, you look so good. This is so good. These are going to be the best photos. <laughs> you look amazing. Oh, this is so cute. This is gorgeous. Oh, do a bit of this. Like I knew what I was doing and I knew absolutely nothing. Then I realised, I was like, geez, this roll of camera, this roll of film is just lasting forever. 
you know, it's this roll of film. Is, oh my god! And I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't loaded a roll of film in. So by that stage, I pretty much did one more roll of film. So I just did one roll of film, and then I was like, oh, this is just not for me. I'll, I'll try and sell the, I'll try and sell the camera soon. You know, just forgot about it. But then my ex girlfriend went to pick up the photos, and they, she spread them out on the table, and then they were all. I didn't even, I didn't even set the camera. I didn't realise you had to because I'd never shot with a manual camera before. I'd, I never shot with those point-and-shoot cameras that you yeah. buy, like a Yashica that you used to buy from the shop back in the day, and they're all automatic, right? So I didn't realise yeah. you had an aperture and a shutter speed and ISO. So I just, whatever was in, the camera came in is what I shot with, right? So all the photos were like either underexposed or overexposed or black or what. Like it was a disaster. Anyway, she had all the photos out on the table waiting for me to come back to have a look at them because I hadn't seen them. And she was being interviewed by a magazine that was basically like The Face. It was a version of The Face in Asia. And the editor was there and he goes, these photos are amazing. They're so arty oh and they're so different and, <laughs> and unusual. There's so much mood in them. Can this guy, uh, can we use these photos for the, your cover shoot? And... Um, so then they used the photos, but then they commissioned me also for a shoot the following week. And I was like, I've got great ideas for this shoot. Like I'm thinking on, <laughs> I'm thinking that I'm absolutely smashing. This is the easiest job in the world. And I'm absolutely smashing this out of the park. Right. <laughs> so I, um, I, I, I told them, okay, I want to shoot at nighttime with glow sticks. Right. Great. And. They were like, okay, that sounds, that sounds great. You know, so it's going to be a very gothic thing and it's, yeah, it, it's going to be amazing. You wait and see, right? And they're like, okay, um, that's no problem. So anyway, the photographer friend who'd been try- wanting to shoot for this magazine for years, he comes back that night and there's all the best hairstylists and makeup artists and models and, and he walks in, he's like, what, the, what, what is going on? And then he walks into our bathroom to a picture of this, like picture this. I'm on a stepladder with a camera shooting down. There's two guys in the bath with glow sticks in the bath, no other light on in the room and a couple of candles. And I'm photographing. He's like, George, come with me for a second. <laughs> so I walk outside. He goes, mate, what the hell are you doing? So I'm oh, just doing the shoots. Glow sticks going to be amazing. He goes, what, what film are you using? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just found some film in your cupboard. <laughs> he goes, can I have a look? And, he goes, mate, you are going to get this so wrong. So he basically assisted me but did everything for me on that shoot. And um, oh my God. then I came, then, you know, I kind of didn't really think of it after that. I, the shoot was very successful. It went really well, but that was not because of me. That was because of him. He, he nailed it. And then um, <laughs> who would have thought glow sticks? Thanks, so, so 2001, right? Um, so then I didn't really think about photography after that because I came back to Australia to set up a chain of health food shops with my mum and dad and my sisters. Mm-hmm. And then they went bust, so I lost everything. Had two hundred dollars left in my bank account after a very successful career at um, Coca Cola and PwC. Lost all my money. Mm-hmm. I had two hundred bucks in my bank account. I owed three thousand dollars on my credit card, but I had a couple of pieces of photo paper. So I printed out my six favorite photos that I'd taken, and I drove. I was back by the stage. I was back on the Gold Coast. I drove to Brisbane in my old jalopy, in my old car. Mm-hmm took it to Vivian's and said, I'm a photographer and this is my deal. Um, I'm doing six looks for $666 because I thought that was really catchy. <laughs> six for 666. Oh, my God. I am such a marketing guru. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they were like, oh, these photos are nice. I'm like, oh, that's thank you. I wasn't expecting that. And they go, so does that include hair and makeup, That's that money? I'm like, oh. God, I didn't even know. Like, I didn't even think about hair and makeup or anything like that. And I go, oh, because yeah, I really needed the money. I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that includes hair and makeup. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, that was a surprise. I'm like, oh, shit, this is too cheap. <laughs> and then they said, then they said, does it include styling? I'm like, well, so I started to put two and two together here. I'm like, well, if they thought it was cheap with the hair and makeup, then no. No, no, it doesn't include styling. And they're like, how much does the styling? I'm like, oh, yeah. God, I don't know. <laughs> $150. They're like, oh, that's good. And I'm like, oh. So anyway, um. <laughs> I said to them, I said, guys, do you mind, do you have a colour photocopier? Because I, I only had that one piece of paper. And they go, yeah. I said, do you mind, because it's such a good deal, do you mind if I take a colour photocopy of this 
um, sheet that's got the six photos on it and the six. six. She said, yeah, no worries. So I took a photocopy of it. I said, thank you so much. And then I went to Deli's, which was their competitors, which is now Chic next door. And I gave them, and I said, basically went through the same thing. And somehow, miraculously, they wanted me to shoot for them. And I started doing models portfolios in my mum and dad's front room because I couldn't afford an apartment. I stayed at mum and dad's place. They're so amazing. They, they gave me the entire front room and I set up a small little studio between the front door and their, you know, Lebs love crystal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a crystal cabinet in the front room. And there's probably about two metres of wall right. between the front room, between the crystal cabinet and our door. That's where I shot everything. And mum and dad's kitchen was studio one and then the living room was studio two. I just do shot, sh- shots all over the house. So were you on seamless paper? No, I didn't have room for a paper roll. I just used the walls <laughs> and then or I'd, I'd sit them on the bed or I'd put them in the corner of a cupboard or I'd outside in a tree. <laughs> I just used whatever resources were available to me. <laughs> And I never had any lights or anything, so I always used car lights or dad would come, sometimes dad would come in from like a Bunnings or something and he would be like, oh, George, I've just, look what I found in Bunnings. These these torches are only uh, $5. I got some of these for your photos. You know, like <laughs> it was, everyone was in it. And so mum, the, the girls would come usually with their parents because they were quite young and mum would cook for everyone. Right. And the parents would be sitting there talking to mum and I'd be shooting them in the front room. And this happened for about three years. And I wouldn't take a commercial job in that time oh because I was God. because I was cutting my teeth. I was trying to work out what I was doing and getting an idea of the technicalities and yeah. what works and what doesn't work. So I took a leave of absence from PricewaterhouseCoopers when I came back to Australia to do the health food shop for mum and dad. And I didn't end up going mm. back. I just kind of fell in love with this photo thing and have stuck to it. Now there's nothing else I want to do. So after the three years of cutting your teeth, when did it sort of become a bit more commercialised? And did you stick to the 666 for three years or did you kind of... I stuck to it. I still couldn't believe anyone was hiring me, to be honest. <laughs> the photos were so rubbish. I cannot tell you. I feel so sorry for the girls. But they did. They, most of them did quite well out of them. But just, just now I look back on it, I'm like, what were you thinking? So where did the professional lighting and stuff come into it? Every dollar that I earned in photography, I put back into photography for the first three or four years. So I was also lecturing at university right. at the time in business. So that's what I used to live off, that money. Any money that I earned in photography, I bought equipment and started accumulating things that I could. Because right. what I found at that stage was if I bought a light, a new light or a new lens, or new, I could start creating a new style of photograph. So I didn't buy mm-hmm. equipment for the sake of buying equipment. I bought equipment to change the style of the type of pictures I was taking. And so I, I started getting more and more technical over the course of that three years. And then a, very, a really bizarre thing happened. I was, I, I never really wanted to work in Australia because I just didn't think, I, the photos that I was taking, I couldn't see them translate very well in Australia at the time. Everyone was shooting like quite long lens, backlit, very Australian summer kind of thing. Whereas I wasn't doing that at all. Mm-hmm. I was shooting quite wide angle, a bit weird, a bit unusual, too much makeup, too much hair, like all a bit crazy. So I didn't think I would fit in here, but I thought, I'd, I wanted to work in London. So I created a portfolio out of up here in, in the Gold Coast with my favourite photos and did some extra shoots, went out to central Queensland where I'm from to try and build some photos that meant something to me because they were close to my roots, which I think is very important when you're developing mm. your own style. Went to central Queensland, took a whole lot of photos, did some specific shoots and put together a portfolio and thought I would test it in Sydney instead of going to London. Um, and I went to six agencies and I think three of the agencies, you know, were like, yeah, we're not interested at all, but that didn't matter for me because I was only going to the agencies to see whether, what feedback I would get on my book so I could change it when I went to London. But then three of the agencies were quite interested. Mm -hmm. And one of them was the artist group and a girl named Jane, who now has her own agency called Artbox Black, um, who she's, she's one of my favorite people in the industry. I absolutely adore her. She was like, oh, I really like your work. Let's stay in touch. Anyway, so on my way to London, my whole family for the first time ever were going to Lebanon together. Um, so we'd never all been to Lebanon together. So it was a very exciting year for us. And I got to Lebanon and the second day I was in Lebanon, I got a phone call from Jane. She goes, George, you won't believe this. The creative director of Australian Vogue, who at the time was Nicholas Jean-Jacques, a great hairstylist, 
has seen your work. It was accidentally up on my computer at the time he was coming to look for portfolios in the agency and loved your work and wants you to shoot this 24-page cover story on Pine Island. Um, Would you come back for it? And so I'm now left with a decision. Do I spend this time with my family, the first and probably the last time we'll ever be in Lebanon altogether, or do I fly back to Australia and start an actual career that in something that I've always, that I really want to do? So it's a very difficult decision to make. Actually, to be honest, it wasn't a difficult decision. I made the decision very quickly and I decided not to go. <laughs> <coughs> Which I think annoyed a lot of people. But here you are. I mean, those decisions, of course. But you don't know that at the time. It's a very... But do you know one of the things is my mum and dad instilled a strength of character that made us stick to a list of priorities in our life. And I don't really waver from that even now. I mean, I think they formulated it and I thought I formulated it, but they actually formulated it for me, if that makes sense, because they're very clever. Yeah, which is the best kind of parenting. Isn't it? And so for me, the number one priority in everything, no matter what, will always be my family. Work will never even come close to that. So the opportunity of not, the possibility of not spending that time with them in Lebanon, it was not worth any possible uptake that would happen with my career in my head. Wow. So I thought, well, maybe there is a bit of an opportunity for me in Sydney So maybe I should go back and cut my teeth. I got an agent in London, a really good agent in London called Morgan Lockyer. And then I went back to Sydney and I thought, okay, I'll do a couple of years in Sydney, just cut my teeth and then go back, Mm -hmm. go to London. And Mm -hmm. basically my first nine months, no one booked me. I was living on two minute noodles and toast in a small little share apartment where I had Mm -hmm. one little tiny room on Moorpark Road and I would do models portfolios on occasions and no one booked me like eight or nine months. It was, it was crazy. So I thought, oh, do you know, maybe this is not for me. And then I got a phone call from my agency, which I think was the phone call, like the, you know, maybe it's time to move on phone call. Um, can we have a meeting next week kind of thing? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I was expecting this, so, you know, I got ready for the meeting. I don't know to this day whether it was that phone call, but then... Then I got a phone call about a, two days later saying, George, um, a guy by the name of Mark Vasalo has seen your work and really loves it and wants you to shoot every month for a magazine called Follow, which was a iter- new iteration of an old, very successful magazine called Follow Me, which was from the 80s, 70s and 80s in Australia. And they, were, they, were re- they re-brought it mm-hmm. out and Mark was the creative director at the time and Mark had, had been at Bazaar and Vogue before that. So Harper's Bazaar then booked me on some jobs and then, you know, it kind of took off from there just bit by bit, step by step. So how many years since the glow stick shoot are we at now? I've been a professional photographer for 15 years. Right. So was London still a priority or you just came home and it sort of all took off from there? Well, it kind of all, I had a whole series, a comedy of errors. I, I was jumping around between London and Sydney shooting for a while and that got a bit difficult. So I stayed in Sydney and I I left my agency in London just because I didn't want to drag them along. And then I started looking at Mm -hmm. agencies in New York. I really felt like I wanted to go overseas and that would kind of crack things open for me and I'd be able to shoot for, you know, the likes of Italian Vogue and those kind of magazines that I'd always used, used to look at and loved and, you know, always dreamt of being in the pages of. And then I got really close with a big agency overseas and then I met my wife back in, back in Sydney and um, so decided not to go and then that, that opportunity kind of dried up and then was mm-hmm. my wife and I after we got married, the year after we got married in 2015, decided to go back over to have a look at whether it's worthwhile for us to live in New York and I got offered a great agency there and couldn't believe I got this offer. It was incredible. I came back and when they'd sent me the contracts and I was about to I was about to look at them with my lawyer, I got an email from the guy that would have been my agent saying, George, I'm so sorry, but the agency's gone bust. So and that was Jed Root. So it was Wow. It kind of just felt to me like it wasn't meant to happen. And then the truth is, it wasn't until after that happened 
where I was like, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay in Australia. I want to keep shooting in Australia. I love what I'm yeah. doing here. I love the teams I work with. I love the Australian fashion industry. It wasn't until I came to that realisation that really it was a bit of a, an alchemist moment where I was sitting in the place that was probably the best place for me anyway. Um, yeah. That I really began to take pictures that I think were more interesting and that I loved more and that, I've changed my focus on the type of pictures I take now far less in self-indulgent, I think, and far more focused on the what the purpose of the shoot is. So I think it gave me it gave me the opportunity to think in quite a different way. And you know, we're very lucky in Australia because we get the opportunity to do great productions. We've got amazing teams here that don't get the credit. We really do. We've got great makeup, we've got great styling, we've got fantastic models if they ever stay here. We've got fantastic assistants. Mm. I've got, got beautiful producers and I just think we've got a fantastic fashion photographic production industry that is very, very underrated in, from a skill level. You look at what we produce on the budgets that we get. It's crazy. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I feel like the duty of care that um, everybody on sets has for each other is incredibly rare as well. The collaboration and the kindness when I was first starting out, I it's it's intimidating to look up to the people that you admire. But I looked at your work before I'd met you and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then I met you and you've got the biggest bloody heart out of anyone I've ever met. And I was like, oh, this is so easy. Like, he's divine. Could you paint a picture of what you thought I would be like based off my work? Well, it's coming from Tiana and I, who you met um, as my videographer, We've had quite the experience being two girls entering the video scene because it's usually men and it still to this day is oriented. I think there are most men behind the video cameras. Yeah. Um, so we've had quite an experience. We'll be on Fashion Week and uh, it'll be like pitch black on the risers and someone or from another team will look at Tiana sort of tinkering, putting a lens onto a body and someone will say, oi, it's red dot to red dot, love. Oh, really? <laughs> Really, like, condescending and Really? How old, how old to, was this person? Uh, about 45. So bizarre to think that that mentality still exists. And then we had, um, we've had experiences where, which we, which we do, that, that sort of um, the moment of letting photography set that tone of what the shot is, get the shot for photography, and then while client and photographer are going over it on the monitor um, with the digi, then video jumps in with the model. Mm. And then once that kind of still image is decided on, then we move on. As a video director, it's hard to take credit for jumping in after a photographer because essentially we're off the back of you in such a way that it is important to credit the photographer to the energy and the and the style of photograph that that photographer has established. Do you know what I mean? Like we're not working, I don't have a clean environment with a fresh pair of eyes. I'm going off the back of exactly what you created so that we're telling a story together. There is certainly a symbiotic relationship that needs to happen between video and stills on a fashion photographic production. But I do think that, and this probably comes down to my philosophy on what makes successful pictures and videos, I do believe that your success is your success in that moment because the technicality of having the lighting set up or the girl in the outfit and having done the the pre-work on it doesn't make a good film. It doesn't mean that you can connect with her and move me when I watch your film. That's the skill of being a great director yes. and that's what you've got in abundance. Do you, see what, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. But until working with you, I hadn't come into much contact of a photographer that had that mindset. Mm, right, okay. And have you since? It's very rare. Really? Yes, but I think more so because those photographers are now flexing that muscle that, of course, there's going to be motion on set with you. It's a campaign, you know, like yeah. it's it's a little bit more of a norm now. But when was the first time that you had motion join you on set at the capacity that you're doing so now? I've had motion for, I would say, 12 years, but I would say the in the, in the format that it is now more regularly, probably I would say five and a half, six years. Mm. I reckon around 2014, 2015. And gradually yeah. more. Yeah, definitely. Well, the deliverables are changing. They are. But <laughs> I, I, when you talk about this 45-year-old guy that's kind of told you about the red dot to red dot, if you look at that mentality and you look at the mentality of 
people that are quite egotistical when it comes to other, like a photographer, for example, that's got a videographer on their set and they're like, oh, that's painful. Mm-hmm. Which used to happen, by the way, in reverse all the time and still does happen on TVCs where they won't give you time as a photographer to shoot the stills campaign, which is probably 45 or 50% yeah. of the total media purchase. They, and, you know, it's, it's that whole ego play that happens. I've got a very solid opinion on that. And that is we're employed to make a set of pictures and films that sell something for a, a client of ours that we're invested in their success. So all I focus on is the end product. And to make the end product good, you and I need to work together in a beautifully symbiotic relationship that gives you enough time and me enough time, but also allows for an effective transfer of information and time given the dynamics that happen on a set. For example, we're running out of light. Why don't we try and shoot this together? Um, I'll co- I'll mm. coattail off what you're doing. I'll shoot what you're doing. You lead it for this one. I'll see if I can find something in it. If I don't have it, I'll shoot more after. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, mm. because it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about I'm a slave to the yeah. picture. I really am a slave to the picture. And when I speak to my assistants, so I'm in the process at the moment of hiring new assistants. I don't say to my assistants that you're working for me. My first assistant, my digital operator, my second, you're not working for me. I'll guide everyone, but you're working for the picture. So everything you do is about making the picture better. So the picture is my boss and the picture is their boss. And I think that if you have that mindset, first of all, you deliver a far greater value to the client because you're thinking about it much more from their perspective than your own perspective. You've extracted ego out of the scenario, Mm -hmm. but you align everyone's vision in a way that they won't, they'll be relentless until they get something that looks good typically. And I Mm. feel like that ego extraction out of the situation is no longer nice to have on a set, but it's now necessary to get through the sheer volumes that we need to get through in the amount of time we've got to get through them now with the new demands on image making. So you're you're and my relationship on set is not a nice to have it's probably the most critical thing in delivering the suite of assets that a client's going to need for that campaign for that season. Yeah, absolutely. So before you mentioned in the past, you were quite self-indulgent with image making and now you are a slave to the picture and you're just sort of a working for the end product. So what would an image have looked like and what would your mindset have looked like previously when you were self-indulgent in photography? To start off with, I think being self-indulgent in photography can actually be a really good thing for most photographers Um, (laughs) because I think being self-indulgent is identifying something that resonates with you and making it work. So it helps you in identifying your style. And I think there's certainly moments where I'm still a little bit self-indulgent in photography but less so in in a commercial realm now. So I think the ego gets extracted out of it now and I become more focused on, on the client's thoughts and trying to make a picture that the client wants, but even better without them realizing that it could have been that much better. Mm. Um, and that's, that, that is mm. pretty much 95% active diplomacy and a 5% active technicality. But I think my self-indulgent photographic George was just doing things for the sake of exploring. It was more of a naive self-indulgence of me trying to find different things the one thing that's been probably true of my work over time is that I don't really have a style because I've never really lit the same way twice. I always change everything, every shoot. So I've got 1,000, mm-hmm. I, I can tell you exactly, but I think it's around 1,900 lighting diagrams because I get my assistants to write them up every time I do a new one. I, and the only reason I write them up is so if I need to go back to them at any point because a client wants the exact same photo, I remember because I just do everything so differently. And so I think the self-indulgence came about through exploration of me trying to find different bits and pieces that resonated with me at different times. And I still do that. I just don't like doing the same thing twice. I get bored so quickly. And I think it's been interesting because I've been very lucky to have a career that's spanned as long as mine has. And I think Mm. that may be because I do continue to explore. For anyone that's listening to this pod that has not been on set or understands the 
production side of it. If I was, say, a clothing brand client and really wanted you to shoot a campaign, how does that work? How does the chain of events occur to get us to set day with you in particular? Let's just say it comes, let's just say a clothing label has a creative director and they've thought of an idea and they're like, geez, we'd really like to get George to shoot this. Yeah. They would typically discuss three or four photographers, I think, and then they would decide who they want to go with. They want George to do it. Then they Mm -hmm. contact my agency, which is the artist group, and they'll ask to speak to, they want to book George. And so the person will put them in touch with my agent, which is Camille Peck. She's a lady that I've been working with for five years and have a very amazing close relationship with. My agency would then discuss it with me, see if there's dates available um, because my my diary Mm -hmm. fills out pretty I have a pretty full diary. I think I've got only a couple of days off in February this year, for example. And then if the dates are, mm-hmm. if the dates work, then I'll be put in touch with the creative director and then we start discussing the concept. Mm-hmm. Um, once we've discussed the concept and everything's good to go, we've locked in a date and we've chosen the models, we've chosen hair, we've chosen makeup, chosen locations, we've worked out what we're going to do, I will do a lighting diagram that, is kind of a sketch more than anything of how I want the thing to look and where I think things will go. And then I turn up to set with my first assistant, my second assistant and a digital operator. The digital operator looks after the computer. My first assistant kind of manages my lighting and my van and also manages the rest of the team a bit more so I can spend time with the client. And my second assistant, Paul Bugger, has got to be really fit because he's the guy that, his name's Tom, he's the guy that runs around with all the sandbags and the, so if we're in a studio or a location, my whole van comes and my van has all my equipment in it. I have four different types of, I actually have six cameras, but four different types of cameras that I use and depending on what the job would be. And then I have a flash, tungsten, HMI, LED, which are the different types of lights that you can use. Some of them are constant. And I've actually shifted my system to more constant light for exactly the purpose that we spoke about, that directors and video is happening more on my set. So I now light specifically for video when I light my still stuff so that it saves time and delivers more value to the production and to the client. So my my van is actually a combination of a gaffer van and a stills lighting van. So it's almost like a video van really. And the beautiful thing I think about a photo shoot is you typically enter a big white room at seven o'clock in the morning (laughs) and you leave the same white room at say seven o'clock at night and you've managed to do something in between that is different and is magical usually that, you know, you get to create a different world for people to live in. That's the fun part. Mm, Absolutely. That's the crack that keeps you going back every day. And usually it's sort of after lunch at about the 2 p.m., time that you just get it <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so what is your lead time how how much back and forth are you doing before a shoot so say you've booked a shoot on the 15th of february when do you start cracking on with the creative directors and casting and all that it's really how long is a piece of string it can be as little as a day and it, it can be as long as three months it really depends typically i would say it depends typically on the nervousness or the trepidation of clients or creatives that would be the fundamental driver so where you go there's a lot of backwards and forwards with some clients on creatives that are really simple you know that that you could I could execute with one assistant one light and a good and good talent and nobody else there but it could still take be three months of pre-production but then there's other circumstances where there's no team there's no budget there's no and then I have to do a lot of work on those situations because there's no team there's no budget and to try and make it work I try yeah. and fill all the gaps. And then there's other circumstances yeah, where I've got some great relationships. One of, the, one of the things that I'm super blessed with and the thing that I love the most about my job is the relationships that I've got. So I've got some relationships with some clients where they'll, they won't even meet with me before the job. They'll send me the brief. They'll tell me the location they want to go to and I just rock up there and I will have the conversation in the morning with them and I'll execute it for them. That's got its advantages mm. and disadvantages. It's got advantages in the sense that it's quite efficient from a time perspective. The disadvantages about it are that I think you sometimes find it difficult to deliver the communication to your creative team, whether it's hair, makeup, styling, in one and a half or two hours in the morning. There's less time for the job to cure, the idea to cure in people's head and for them to start thinking about it and create something that was just slightly more unusually beautiful than standardly beautiful. 
which I think is where the magic is. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely advantages and disadvantages, yeah. I think, the, about it. I always appreciate the trust, though, from a client that comes oh, yeah. and is like, yeah, we'll see you there. You're like, oh, okay. It, it's so good, yeah. <laughs> That's so good. It's the best. So in an instance that you're creative directing and there is no creative direction, they want you for your imagination, how does that play out? Quite differently. I like to lead very heavily with an idea and then put the right resources around it to see what that idea does. I'm not massive on referencing. I would prefer individual elements of a production to reference. So what I mean by that is I won't, I'll come with an idea. So for example, the idea could be romantic Scottish Highlands, but alienistic, for example. So it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. You have to interpret however you want. So then I would find the person I think that would interpret that brief interestingly from a hair perspective from a makeup perspective, from a styling perspective, the type of models that fit that kind of groove that I'm trying to go for. And then very early in the piece, I'll try and get them thinking about it and get them to provide input on what they would like to do to make that work. And I think when you manage teams in that way and you give them authority, you always get a better result. And it's always about not killing ideas because you don't think that they're going to work and having enough trust in the team that you surround yourself with that the idea may work, but still having the authority to be able to harness the idea if it doesn't and say to them, look, we need to tone that hair down because something needs to give in this and I think the balance is not right. But you need to, for example, but I think you need to give a creative licence to the individual elements to truly make something that's individualistic and is not a replication or a copy of other people's work. Do you think that your time at PwC and at Coca-Cola managing teams and being in the corporate environment has lent to your ability to lead a team and respect other people's hard work in that sense to then collaborate with? No. Interesting. Where do you think it came from? I think it's people's nature. I learned a lot of other great things at PwC and Coca-Cola, organisation, learning how to learn, which I think is the most important thing in in photography in any creative industry, allowing yourself to know how to learn, teaching yourself to learn to learn. It's really weird, but learning to learn is, I think, the most critical thing. All those things came from working in a corporate environment. I think the way I work with people is probably a derivative of my family, of my mum and dad, not the corporate environment. Giving people enough air to breathe and to think and to create around an idea is not a typical thing in the corporate environment, I would argue. And it's probably quite a typical thing within my family. I'll never forget when we were on Scanlon, we were doing, it was the spring racing 20, it would have been 2019 now, but pre-COVID. And we were at Baker Street Studios and the shot was already done. (laughs) You were having so much fun on the floor with the model. And you were down (laughs) and you were looking up at her. And she, her English, she's stunning and I think she's still in the country. Mm. Um, At the time she was really fresh and her English wasn't that great. But the relationship that you had established with her, I think you got her jumping up and down Mm. to do something, to like loosen her up a little bit and then the shot was was created. The other thing to bear in mind, I probably wasn't looking for the shot there. I was looking for her. If she was starting to loosen up. Oh, my God, absolutely. If she was starting to loosen up, I probably was trying to give her the confidence to keep going and not stop her so it breaks that concentration. Because a lot of the times I shoot the first 100 photos knowing that I'm not going to use it just to give the model the opportunity to get it wrong and Mm. not feel judged. I think that's a really important thing. absolutely. But there's also like there's an incredible amount of parallels to how you treat people on set to how you're raising your girls. Like it's, it's incredible to hear all of this from you but also have, been in the presence to watch it unfold because it is pretty remarkable. Oh, thank you. And I wrote you a question originally, does doubt ever creep in? And I mentioned that Meryl Streep is the goat, which is the greatest of all time. And I can just see that happening for you. Like now that your girls are here and you're building that beautiful home with Phoebe, that just oofed the mark that you've left on the industry, but also everybody that you impact and sort of walking into a Georgia Santony set is a hell of a privilege. Oh, 
That's that's too nice. Thank you. Have you been speaking to my mum? <laughs> it is. It's unbelievable. I have more questions and I'm not wrapping it up in a sentimental bow yet, so I'm still going to chat to you. But that's what I mean. Like it's just the parallels between you and your girls and your family and your work is... That, that's that's very that's very lovely. I don't feel as though I've massively impacted the landscape in the Australian fashion industry, to be honest, but I do hope that there have people that have benefited and will continue to benefit from what we get to do together, that means a lot more to me than, you know, anything. Because I, I still don't feel like, I still don't feel like I've taken a good photo. So hopefully that will come. <laughs> That's true. It's true. What do you remember though? What is it that you remember? The warmth and that, that, um, that comfort and the trust that you put into everybody to make their own mistakes but be guided by you and the way that you... Um, as I said, work the room and you treat it like a family Christmas. It's like it's, <laughs> you can see the joy that you love and you do, you, you, we can all feel how much you love the job and it makes us work harder around you to also love it and be a slave to the picture, as you said. But, God, there are a lot of challenges on set. Like the amount of times we move around to get different shots and do things and there's challenges with an outfit and it's a very short skirt and the model's got very long legs and we decide to put her in a hedge and it still looks great and there's a cliff over there, so let's do that. And different things and, like, we're just making shit up essentially. That's all we do. It's like what's going to look cool? If we walked on and told the client we're going to get the model to put her head in the hedge, just trust us, they'd be like, what earth are you talking about but then you just sort of figure it out and that play is the best and um and it has been really inspiring to be around you and sort of watch that play and the doubt and the kind of like is that going to work I don't even know but just try it and it's so interesting I've said this to my team as well I don't feel comfortable when I know something's going to work it feels a bit lazy (laughs) what do you mean it feels a bit lazy (laughs) I want to I, spice it up a bit. I'm not interested in the photo being in the centre of the spectrum. I want it to be on the outside where yeah. people are not 100% sure if they like it or don't like it, but it starts testing people's perceptions of themselves or different things. How does that come into play when at the end of the day we're all working for these brands that need to move units and SKUs? Oh, it's an excellent question. What's the balance like between creating a creative picture an art-based picture and a commercially relevant picture, right? Mm-hmm. So one that would make clients a lot of money. I think the typical answer that a lot of people have to that is that they're quite different. A really artistic picture can never really be very commercial and a very commercial picture can never really be very artistic, that they sit quite far away from each other on the spectrum. But I think more and more so since the necessity or the demand for content and the amount of people that are taking photographs now that the really successful campaigns, the really successful brands have always erred on the side of art and made things commercially successful in that regard. So if you look, Gucci is probably the best example and the clearest example. They just went to town on everything and they've killed it. They've they've (laughs) absolutely grown their business and it's because they've got an opinion and their opinion is more interesting. One of the biggest challenges that I think facing Australian retailers is the conservative nature of the hierarchy within a lot of companies is, I think, causing a lot of their competitive disadvantage on a global scale. The more conservative you are when you're making pictures to stand out to people, and I don't think they should be crazy like nudes, no clothes, whatever. I don't think it's about that, but I think it's about creating truly memorable, different and unusual images. Those are the ones that are going to stand out. A lot of people mistake seeing the product in its perfect form with branding and they're two very different things. Actually, Simon Lecchia said to me once, and I think it was one of the best analogies I've ever heard. He goes, George, as photographers, we're not selling the sausage, we're selling the sizzle. And it's brilliant. Yeah. It's a really brilliant way of of looking at it and I think a lot of the times people are trying to get you I can't see that shirt perfectly or that jacket's a different color or I can't see the jeans or why can't I see the shoes in the shot and all that I think is 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 very relevant and very important but I think what people are struggling with at the moment with the demand for so many different formats for content is 
am I trying to show the clothes or am I trying to tell people that this is this type of brand and if you're this type of woman, you should ascribe to this type of brand. And it's much more power in the second than the first because if you can make people believe in the type of woman or man you want, they want to be, then they will follow you regardless of what the product looks like. Obviously that everything needs to work in synergy, but I feel as though there is a real effectiveness in having quite creative content that illustrates the type of person that should be buying this product and not just being conservative. And there's one company that I work with in Australia particularly that I think that absolutely nail it in that regard. And I think that they have really identified the type of market they're after and they never compromise their creativity in space for commercial relevance. So it's Song for the Mute, very, very popular overseas and just very creative. They're really a great example of an Australian business that has looked outward, looked internationally, has not tried Mm -hmm. to follow any other company and has created a identity for themselves that every that their market is very loyal to. Yeah. I feel like Lucy Folk is very good at doing that as well, with that like artisanal essence and creating that world, even to the sense you walk into the storefront. Yeah. You feel it. You feel you feel that energy once you go into that environment. That I think lacks a little yeah. a little bit of the main the main street retail in Australia that we work for there's a little bit of a lack of clear understanding of what we are and what we're trying to be and a little bit of trying to be everything to everyone. Do you think that that comes from a lack of creativity or a lack of courage to put themselves out there and decide they're going to trailblaze through like Gucci has? I'm going to be, I'm going to be controversial and say I think it comes from a lack of understanding of the potency of art buying. So it's not – courage is a part right. of it. But I think when we were brought up on weekends going to the football ground and playing netball and – doing cricket and that kind of stuff. Other people in different areas of the world were going to museums and galleries and they were exercising a different muscle, a creative muscle that understands Mm -hmm. the variation and the differences between different creative processes and the importance of that in a culture and the importance of that in a commercial sense. In Australia, we don't have that level of art buying sophistication to identify how powerful art and design can be in making markets successful from a commercial standpoint. How do you think that moving forward with social media and TikTok and things, our jobs are going to change, yours being a primarily campaign photographer and the the presence of motion and social media? First of all, I think motion is the most important thing now. But I do think that the job of the photographer or director that's leading the shoot has changed. I think you you can no longer think of it as, I don't think it should be thought of that George is the photographer, therefore he needs to press the button on the camera and then there's a videographer that comes and does the video stuff. And I think what needs to happen is one person in that environment needs to lead the entire creative umbrella, probably more so at the moment technically but eventually creatively. And that means if as a photographer, I'll light it, I'll also take the photographs, but the videographer will work within the realm of what we're creating so that there's a consistent messaging across all mediums. Because one of the things that I feel like a lot of companies are struggling with is there's such an inconsistent execution in a lot of their social media campaigns. They're pulling something off a Kylie Jenner post and then they're adding it with a campaign and they're putting in a video from that campaign that looks nothing like the campaign. They're adding a lookbook shot. I feel as though the new reality and commercial success in the next five years is going to be creating an umbrella over the execution of your visual communications that allows for a clearer understanding of what it is that you're trying to be as a brand and the type of woman or man that you're trying to illustrate. Interesting. So as a manager of clients and you've got your team of ACs and your own van and all of that, are you saying, are you going to move into motion personally? I've been asked a thousand times. I will do it on rare occasions, Hmm. but it just is not, I don't feel like I don't do motion. I feel like I set the environment up for somebody else to shoot it. I tend to do that a lot. 
I sh- I've directed a lot of my own stuff and I've directed a lot of TVCs and I've directed a bunch of fashion films. But I just am, it's just not a passion of mine to go through the process of capturing it and editing it and, you know, I'd prefer to have someone brilliant like you on set <laughs> that could do that. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> so what does 2022 look like for you coming up? What are your ambitions? And 21 and 22 are consolidation years for me. Third child coming, trying to make this house for my children to grow up in, trying to help my clients come through a difficult two years with maybe a fresh perspective and an optimism. And really it's about not overextending myself this next year. And the following year I think is going to be a more growth-based year for me where I'm going to try playing with things, doing things differently, having a crack at things in a different type of way. But this year is certainly not that year for me because I think Sinza summed it up um, when he said in his book The Art of War, the general that opens too many fronts of battle is sure to lose the war. Absolutely. So I think I'm at that stage in my year where there's a lot of battles opening up, family battles, house battles, trying to keep my health, you know, trying to be healthy, um, you know, all those things I think are more of a priority for the next few months. Shortly after this, George and I digressed and we went into a whole other sphere of chats which didn't lend itself to the world of Process the Podcast. So I've decided to keep this episode under an hour. George is the best and I hope that you follow his work and career closely after listening to this episode. His work is a marvel. This episode is brought to you by Cinematom, my very own production company. So many smaller brand owners hit me up every day and want to create social content to service their presence on apps like Instagram and TikTok. And while those apps have great trends for you to jump on, not all of us want to be in front of the camera every day. So I've made a cheat sheet to give back to you, the listener, and I hope that you love it. It's a cheat sheet of more than 25 trends to jump on that don't need to show your face at all. Tag us if you want to. I would love to see what you create. Jump over to cinematom.com and grab it. The pop-up pops up right away. It's super easy. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next Sunday.